1 John chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 18, is where we're going to be tonight. We're, I think we're going to make it through verse 29, but we'll just see how it goes as we dive into this. But, uh, you know, <clears throat> from the earliest days of the church, and, and that's just the church in general, but specifically here as we're talking about the, the epistle of First John, uh, but the church in and around Ephesus. But from the earliest days of the church, false teachers have been a problem. And um, different types of false teachers. There were some, Paul dealt a lot with Judaizers. They were people who tried to teach the Gentiles that they had to convert to Judaism and follow all the rules of Judaism in order to truly be uh, part of the people of God. And But there are other false teachers. And John, as we've talked about in previous weeks, he was dealing with a different uh, group of, of false teachers, but uh, but it's always been a problem. When, when Paul bid his final farewell to the elders of the Ephesians, Ephesians church, this is what he said in, in Acts 20, verses 29 through 31. He said, I know full well that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some of you, this is a really interesting passage. He says, even some of you will distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears for you. And so Paul said, listen, I know false teachers are going to come and they're going to come with selfish motivations. And, and, and unfortunately, Paul's prediction had been correct. And thus, as, as John wrote, to these very same believers in and around Ephesus, he wanted them to understand the difference between true and false teachings and be able to d discern between true and false teachers and then to remain true to the faith that the apostles had passed on to them. So that's the context of what we're going to be looking at tonight. So let's begin reading in verse eight, 18 of 1 John chapter 2. Dear children, this is the last hour, as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none, none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. So we'll stop there for now. We'll We'll read the last part of the, of the chapter in a moment, in a little bit. But John starts off there in this first verse that we read tonight. He talks about the last hour. And uh, it, it, this is the only time in all the New Testament where it's, that phrase is used, right here in this verse. And, and uh, it, it really, it's the same idea. It refers to the same thing as other places where it talks about the last days or the end times. And, and uh, the thing about those phrases are, is that um, we, in our modern mindset and the way that s sometimes prophecy is approached 
uh, in our in our uh, teaching and that sort of thing. When you think about end times, it can get really confusing to people because they think to themselves uh, that 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 all of history has come and here finally in these last couple of years we're finally in the end times. But that's that's not what that phrase means at all. In fact, uh, the the Bible uses it very very differently than that because the Bible uses the term end times or last days or here last hour. It really describes all of the time between Christ's first and second coming. So from the time Jesus came and instituted a brand new covenant, from then on is the end times. In other words, and you, you can see it in the book of Hebrews, if you read the first chapter of Hebrews, you'll see that part of what happens is he says that in times past, before Christ, you'll see this in Hebrews 1, God spoke by the prophets. But now, in the final days, and he's referring to all the days, he said, since Christ came, now he speaks to us through Christ, through his son. And that's what it says in Hebrews. And, and so when it talks about this, it's, uh, it, it's, it makes us understand that the end times or last days are, is a much longer period of time than what we tend to think of. Because we tend to think of, oh, we're finally in the last days. No, we have been. In fact, the, uh, all, all the first century readers of First John lived in the last days. And, and so, do, so do believers today. And... Um, it, it, but there, there's something about that phrase, the, the word last, it just gives a sense of urgency that, that Christ will return soon. And, you know, the early church, they, they believed that Christ could return at any time. And, and so do we. And here we are the, the, all these many years later. But, but Peter said in, uh, when he wrote in the same kind of idea, he said, the end of all things is near. The end of all things is near. But, but here's the problem with the word near when you're talking about time. Uh, and that is that God views time very differently than I do. Right? My lifespan, you know, according to the scripture, you know, if I live to be 70 or 80 years, that's a normal lifespan. And that's just a blip when you think about all of human history, all of the history of creation. Then you add to that the fact that God is eternal. So it's eternal. Well, you know, that means that for God to say something is near, it's going to have a whole different meaning to him than it does to me. Um, it's like, how many of you remember when you were, when you were little, like six, seven years old, and you get out of school for the summer? And then summer back then just seemed to last forever. You remember those days? And then you get a little bit older, and suddenly it's like, it's not just that summer goes fast, it's like you turn around and you realize, Man, what happened to the last five years? I don't know where it went. It's just gone. It just goes faster. And so, you know, the, the sense of timing is different. And part of the reason is because, you know, a, a year to a five-year-old, that's that's 20% of their entire life, right? And so a year is going to seem much longer to them to somebody who's who's lived to be 80 years old. And so, uh, so we need to understand that when we talk about last days and end times, what we're talking about is, is that we are in the last days. We are in the end times. And, that's, and that what that means is, is that now Christ is speaking, God is speaking through his son, and there's not going to be another way of communication. There's not going to be another era. There's not going to be a time after this where God is doing something different. He has done what he's going to do. And now uh, he has made his statement. Christ is his statement. 
And, and so that's why we're in the last days. So, uh, but, but again, this last hour, as he says here, it, it really evokes a sense of imminence and urgency in, in, in those which, uh, who, who follow Christ, which we should all be living in, in every age. There should be, whether you lived in the first century uh, church or you live today, there should, should be a sense of urgency in which we live, knowing that Christ could return at any time. And, and, and we live in the same way as, as John was saying there, we live in a time when antichrists, plural, are active. And, and that activity will increase until the Antichrist, as book of Revelation, comes at the end of the last hour. And in fact, Jesus himself warned us of all of this from the very beginning in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, he says, Jesus said, uh, uh, answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And then down in verses 24 and 25, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So here's what we know, that as the gospel spreads, so will mi Satan's missionaries. Often, by the way, often disguised as Christians. Um, we are engaged in a global conflict for the souls of men and women, and, 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 and we have been for, for centuries now. Now, here's the thing about it, though. When you start talking about these things and say that return of Christ is near, the end days, that we're in the last days, these sort of things, thoughtful readers will hear that, they will ponder these claims, and then they, they will think about it and realize that after nearly 2,000 years, Christians are still waiting. In fact, that was happening even, even back, uh, that, that's what, uh, what uh, I think it was Peter who replied when he said, he said, God is not slow in keeping his promises as some consider slowness, but he's only delaying because he wants all men to repent. And, and so even back then people were saying, you've been saying Christ is coming all this time. I don't know if it's true or not. He's softly slow in his pro keeping his promises. And it'd be easy for us to fall into that, especially nowadays. And the natural tendency when, that's, when we think that way is to begin re to relax and to assume that the culmination of history is, is probably still many years in the future. And for many of us, honestly, that's how we live. We, we don't live with an, in, uh, in a way that, that, that shows that we anticipate that Christ could return at any moment. We actually tend to live as if we think that he's not coming for another 20 years. Now, to be fair, I think the way we live is, is that we, we live as if Christ is returning in the next five minutes, but we plan as if he's returning 20 years from now because you don't know when he's coming. So you don't, you don't want to be foolish and say, well, Jesus is coming. And so I know he's coming really soon. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to spend all my money now. I'm not going to save anything. Well, you know, that would be a foolish thing. Um, but, uh, but believers today, we have, we have to keep in mind the frequent scriptural warnings not to be caught off guard, not to grow lackadaisical, but we're to be prepared. And not only are we to be prepared, but we're to be active in Christ's service until he returns. Because we need to be alert because Christ could return today. 
That means that if there's something that he's calling me to do, I need to be working toward it. Now, maybe, maybe I need to be working on the preparation period because that's just as important as the actual event. Uh, but I need to be doing something, not just sitting back and relaxing and being lazy because when Christ returns, I want to be found doing what he's called me to do. Not thinking that I ought to do it, but doing it. So what he said there, he referred to the apostles teaching that the Antichrist is coming. And I want to take a little bit of time talking about this because, you know, the, the word Antichrist has this way of striking a sense of wonder and amazement and even fear in our hearts. And in one sense, it, it should, you know, but we have all these movies and these pictures in our mind of, of the Antichrist. And we have this thing built up in our, in our heads. But, but given, given all the strange and wild speculations that surface when Antichrist, the, the Antichrist is mentioned, it's, it's actually, it's very, very absolutely essential that we have a biblically balanced understanding of who the Antichrists are and what the Antichrists do. And I say that plural uh, because the, we see here, John, he actually refers to the Antichrist, but he says there are many Antichrists among us. So let's talk about what that means because this can be really confusing to us because we use that term in a very specific way, but we need to understand what, he, what the term really means. Because now the term Antichrist can actually have two meanings uh, in the Greek. Anti is just a Greek proposition that when you put it in front of another word, it can mean either against or it can mean in place of. So, for example, there's a Greek word, strategos, is the Greek word for a commander, okay? And if you say anti-strategos, that can mean one of two things, depending on the context in which it's used. It can mean the hostile commander, the other commander that's in opposition to this commander, or it can mean the deputy commander who's on my side, who if something happens to me, he takes my place. So, so uh, it's two different ideas that come from the same word. Uh, and, and so Antichrist, understanding this, can mean either uh, the opponent of Christ, or it can mean <clears throat> the one who seeks to put himself in the place of Christ. So it can mean two different things. Now, the primary idea in this case, and this would be the case for, for the many antichrists and the ones that we even see today, uh, the, the, the primary idea is that they are enemies that are against Christ. Um, John makes it very plain in verse 22, what the spirit of Antichrist is all about. They are liars who deny that Jesus is the Messiah. Their strategy is deceptive and, and seductive. And, and in fact, they, some directly oppose Jesus, but some do not necessarily even come out and say, I oppose Christ. But what they do instead is they redefine him and they re reimagine him. They say things like, he is good, but, but he is not God. Or they'll, they say he may be a son of God in the same sense that we can all become sons and daughters of God, but they say he is not the son of God. Or they say he might have died on the cross as a martyr, but he did not die as a savior. So here's the thing. If you want to know if, if someone is moving in the spirit of Antichrist, and, and, and all you have to ask yourself 
is look at this and understand because the spirit of Antichrist always diminishes the person and work of Christ. Goes against him. That's what Antichrist means. They're against Christ. So if somebody says, oh, he's not really, he's not the son of God, that's the spirit of Antichrist. If somebody says, oh, Jesus was, you know, okay, he was a person who lived, but he was not, he was not divine. That is the spirit of Antichrist that's loose in the world. And, and so, or if they say, uh, not, not just the person, but if they say, oh, Jesus didn't die for the sins of, of mankind. Well, now you're, you're diminishing the work of Christ. That is the spirit of Antichrist that's at work in the world. And, and Satan is, you know, I mean, he embodies the spirit of Antichrist. So to understand this, so the, the, the Antichrist spirit thinks and then teaches incorrectly who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So when you hear somebody changing, and this can be a, whether it's a cult or it can be another religion, whatever it might be, if they say, if they change who Jesus is or change what he has done or diminish his work in any way, that's actually the work of the spirit of Antichrist that loose, that's loose in the, in the church, in the world today. <clears throat> the, the reality is <clears throat> the hub of Christianity, if you will, <clears throat> is the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, the, the eternal and divine son of God. You cannot have Christianity without the person and work of Jesus. In a sense, Jesus is Christianity in a very real sense. And, and if, if you get it wrong here, and we've talked about this before, if you get it wrong here, when you talk about who Jesus is and what he's done, then, then almost every other theology you're going to draw from that is going to be wrong. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, plural, and, and it will attempt, you to, to attempt to lead you down the road of spiritual error that is a theological dead end. And during this last hour, these Antichrists, these false teachers who pretend to be Christians and who lure weak members away from Christ, John says they will continue to be active just as they were in John's day. Interestingly, here's something, a side note that goes with this. When you think about Antichrist, there, could, there can be no Antichrist if there was not a true Christ. So even in their coming, their coming is a witness concerning who he is and his coming. But, but when we think about these things, here's what's important for us to get is that believers need not fear these evil people, but our response is we must be grounded in God's word. This is the problem with a lot of the Western church is that we're not grounded in the word of God. Some of us, I'll be, listen, can I just, I'm just going to just start meddling if I can. Uh, I'm going to do it anyway, even if you say no. So here we go. Um, there, there are a lot of believers in the world today that are far more grounded in the lyrics of worship songs than they are in the word of God. And some worship songs are very good and very biblical, but I'm here to tell you, some are not. And there are people that will buy into it and, and because it makes them feel good, they think it must be true. 
Um, I, I'm going to re probably return to this in a, in a few moments, but, but here's the problem with that. If you're judging whether it's true by whether you, it feels right to you, then you have no more of a, uh, uh, of a uh, uh, foundation than the Mormon who says, I read the Book of Mormon and I had a burning in my bosom, so I, I believe it's true. You, you have no more right to claim truth than, than, than a Muslim who says, I felt, it felt right in my spirit when I heard this. It's gotta be more than just what you feel. Um, and that's the problem, you know, with chasing after emotions and that sort of thing. And, and that's the problem. You see, I mean, honestly, many of these antichrists, these false spirits, these false teachers, they will appeal to you on a very emotional level uh, because if it feels right, they know that they can draw you aside and, 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 and it's just a very dangerous thing. So, so we, we, not, we don't need to be afraid of them. I don't have to hide in the corner and say, oh, I don't know if there's a false teacher out there somewhere, but I have to be grounded in the word of God. I have to know what God's word says, because that, that is my, my yardstick. That's the only thing that I have. That's why he gave it to us. And, and as, as the Holy Spirit reveals false teaching through the word of God, then, then believers will know the truth and then we won't be deceived. If we know the truth, we won't be deceived. If we don't know the truth, we are far more vulnerable to deception. Um, believers, we, we need to teach God's word clearly and carefully, uh, especially to the weaker members uh, among us at the, in the church so that they won't, won't fall prey to these false teachers. All right, so what John is saying here, it means that there are people who are antichrist, but they aren't the antichrist, okay? So they're against Christ. They diminish uh, the person and work of Christ, but they are not the antichrist. They are in opposition to Jesus, but they're not the person who will exalt himself into the place of worship to be occupied only by Christ. And, and they're already, you know, historically such persons that, that could fit that description have come and gone. They've come on the scene and, 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 uh, and, but all of these that have, they're just merely precursors to the one antichrist. Um, th throughout history, there have been individuals who epitomized evil and who were hostile to everything for which Christ stands. And, and, and these, these antichrists have lived in every generation and will continue to work their evil. In fact, I, 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 and I, you can take this for what it's worth and take it with a grain of salt, but this is kind of what I believe. I believe, I believe that Satan has no idea when Jesus is going to return. And I believe that he and every generation has somebody that's ready to step in. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, the, back in days of Hitler, people, people were saying, Christians were saying, oh, Hitler's the Antichrist. Well, if Christ had returned in that, during that time, he may have been. I don't know. Uh, you know, so, uh, uh, but, but the, the reality is there are many, many cult leaders in the world today. There are many false teachers today who draw people away from the true faith. And unfortunately, many of them, many of those false teachers do it under the banner of Christianity. Uh, and uh, for, uh, let me tell you something. Some of them now have become mainline denominations. Some of our mainline denominations that have historically taught the supremacy of Christ 
and the supremacy of his work on the cross now have diminished what Christ has done and they diminish the Bible. They dismiss the word of God and they have become even antichrists in the way that they approach the word of God, which is just, uh, you know, a generation ago would have been unfathomable. I mean, nobody would have even possibly believed that 40, 50 years ago. Um, but, but they're out there. They're, the teachers are out there. And as I said, he makes an, John makes an important distinction between the many antichrists that are already here in the world and the one antichrist who is coming at the end of the age. Make no mistake, Satan's Superman will appear someday. You know, the, the devil's darling, as I've heard him called, will make a grand interest sometime in the future. And this counterfeit Christ will come on the scene of world history. And, and amazingly, in this world that seems so anti-Christ, uh, which is, I mean, it's just actually makes sense when you think about it. The world is anti-Christ. So when the anti-Christ comes in, they'll be ready for him. But he will show up on the scene of, his, of world history and amazingly, the whole world will marvel and will follow him. We're told in Revelation 13, 2 and 3, that Satan will indwell him and give him his power, his throne and great authority. And then in, in verse 4 of Revelation 13, the Bible teaches that the nations will even worship him as God. So the person called anti, the Antichrist is coming and he's, and he's in the spirit of these same Antichrists that are in the world today. And he's the same uh, as what Paul, he, Paul called him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. And he's also known as the beast in Revelation chapter 13. We know he's coming. Now, here's the thing. This is where, uh, you know, we, we as Christians, we love our prophecy. We love to dig into it. The problem with interpreting prophecy is that the only way you can be 100% sure about interpreting prophecy is after it's been fulfilled. Uh, this, you know, you, you can you can know what's going to happen, but you the, you don't know how it's going to happen. You know, uh, so so what happens is we we you know we get our big charts. You know, have you ever, everybody ever been to one of those? Seen somebody had the big chart that went all the way across the front of the church, and they had all the timeline there and had everything all all figured out. And I just pictured. The father up in heaven saying, well, son, I'm going to send you back just as soon as I can figure out this chart. I'm just trying to figure out where you fit in here. But uh, and I am making light of that. But but uh, but the tendency is we can say to ourselves, well, OK, he's coming. But when when is he coming? And, and could he be alive right now? You know, several several years ago, Newsweek reported that 19 percent of all Americans and 50 percent of, of those who accept biblical prophecy have believed that the Antichrist is alive today. Well, again, from what I was saying earlier, I think that in every generation, there's somebody that the devil has ready to go and, you know, ready to step into that place. But, but, it, but here's the thing I want to say. It is dangerous to label any person as the Antichrist and then to try to use that to predict Christ's return based on that assumption. Uh, because w whether he is alive or not, I cannot, will not, and should not speculate and, and if I see somebody, I cannot, will not, and should not speculate that they are the Antichrist, and neither should you, because that's God's business. That's God's business. What I do know, and here's, what, here's the thing about prophecy. There are some things we do know. We don't know who he is. We don't know when he's coming. But what I do know is he will come. And the spirit of Antichrist is alive and well in the world today. I know that. So 
What that means is I need to be on the lookout for those who attack the biblical teachings about Christ. And so, so John mentioned the Antichrist here that, and that he's coming, not so that believers would try to identify the person, but so that they would be ready for anything that might threaten their faith. So they won't be deceived easily. That's his whole goal. He says, I don't want you to be deceived. The, the Antichrist is coming, and there are many Antichrists in the world now. That spirit is loose, and there's false teaching. There are people teaching all kinds of things about Jesus. He says, don't be deceived. Here's, here's the truth. And that's what he, what he says. Then verse 19, we read it, but this is John's first direct statement about those who had left the churches in Ephesus. Because you remember, we talked about how these false teachers um, had... had, uh, uh, had had gone out from the church, they'd left the church, these sort of things. And this is the first time as he's addressing these false teachers, this is the first time that he actually specifically mentions them. This is what he says. He says, they went out from us, which by the way, that's a very frightening statement right there. The, the greatest threat to the church is never from without. It's always from within. He says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So, so these false teachers, these antichrists, they were not total strangers to the churches. They were people they knew. They were people that, that had, where they were claiming this special knowledge, this special enlightenment, and, uh, and the, you know, this Gnostic idea that they had. And, uh, but they had been part of the church community in, in fellowship with John and in fellowship with these other believers. And, and these people evidently became promoters of these false teachings about Jesus. And when their teachings were not accepted by the leaders of the church, then, uh, 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 then they left. They just left the church. And, and they began trying to pull people out of the church. And, and, and they, they, but he says that when they left, it revealed they did not belong to the Christian community, that he says they were never true believers. He stated that, that, that if, they, if, they, if they had been true believers, they would have stayed. But it also teaches us about believers in the church, a couple of things. First of all, true believers persevere in the faith. Endurance characterizes true Christians. Jesus said to his disciples in Mark 13, 13, and everyone will hate you because of your allegiance to me but those who endure to the end will be saved. So there's this aspect of endurance, of perseverance that, a, that somebody who is, who is a follower of Christ has. They don't just quit. They don't just give up easily. They don't, you know, take the ball and go home when things don't go their way. But th those who, who do not retain their full allegiance to Christ will leave and prove that they never really belonged in the first place. They heard the truth. They got a taste of it. But when persecution came, they made a quick exit. Uh, but true believers will remain loyal to Christ, even if following him leads to persecution. And the second thing that verse teaches, not only is there endurance and perseverance there, but what it, sa it says to us something about the church itself, because it tells us also that all who attend church may not be true believers. And, and in fact, some... Uh, I would go so far as to say, sometimes the ones that are not would surprise you because they're so good at playing the game. They can use the right language. They play the part well. And, and, and you have, you'd be shocked at what was in their heart. Uh, 
but there are very, frankly, very, there are likely people in our church that are associated with our church that would call themselves Christians that are not really believers in Jesus Christ. And we need to be sensitive to that fact, not so that we can root them out and expose them, but so that we can be used by God to touch them and impact their lives. Then verse 20, he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. and All of you know the truth. So remember that some of these false teachers were claiming superior knowledge. They were claiming a special anointing that, that they supposed, that supposedly made them true Christians. And if you want, if you really want to be a real Christian, they say, come follow us. We'll give you this special superior knowledge, this special anointing. Well, John just, he just faced this false teaching head on by telling the believers that they already possessed the special anointing from God and, and that, and, and that anointing, that anointing gave them all the knowledge and discernment of the truth. So now we need to talk about that because, um, we use the word in the modern church anointing a lot. And I think it's important for us to get a biblical understanding of what the word really means. Because uh, unfortunately, what had, and we'll probably come back to this, but what it has devolved to often is that it created, it stirred some emotion in me. So we'll say, well, that was anointed because I had this emotion. And I think we need to understand what anointing is. Anointing usually refers to the pouring of a special olive oil on a person's head. You know, like when we anoint people here at the altar, if we're praying for somebody, we do a little dab on them. And, and that's, you know, that's nothing wrong with that. But when they anointed in the Old Testament, they would take this big flask of oil. And they, like when David was anointed king of Israel, they poured it all over his head. And that's a much better picture of what, in, what it's supposed to be. It's, the, it's a symbol. Oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So it's a symbol of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And, and, and the whole idea behind it was, was to, that it, it was used to consecrate kings and special servants for, for service. It was setting them apart for a special purpose for God. Um, and, and so the, the anointing that John speaks of, what, what, what he, I believe he's talking about, he's talking about the, the, the Holy Spirit who has been given to believers by the Father and Son. When Jesus came, the New Testament tells us that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then that same Holy Spirit is given to believers. So, so it's when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, uh, uh, th these false teachers, they did not know the truth, even though they claim special wisdom and insight, but true believers know the truth. And the anointing that every believer receives helps him or her discern the false from the true. But it's, but it's still the same concept that you have, after you come to Christ, you have been set aside for God's purpose. You are not, as Paul said, you're not your own. You don't, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You've been set aside for God. And that's the, that's the idea of anointing. It's, it's, it's really not this special moment that stirs up emotion inside of other people. It's really about the fact like for example, say when you say a sermon is anointed, what what you what we really mean by that is that God took that message and set it apart apart specially for that moment to do something and accomplish something. So it's not you know that it stirred up emotions because frankly 
Sometimes things that are anointed by God doesn't, doesn't bring the emotion that, uh, that, that, we, that we would associate with it, not, not all the time. So um, uh, it, it's become, and this is important, I think, I think we need to understand that it's become very commonplace to label certain preachers or songs or worship services or sermons as anointed. And that usually means, I think, and I think this is not necessarily bad. It usually means that the that the person that that person or the song or the event or whatever it is evokes or facilitates an awareness of God's power and presence. Okay, um, but 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 this wonderful quality that's a great thing. That that's not fully what the word anointed means. As I said, to anoint in biblical terminology means to consecrate or to set apart for a special purpose. Now, as I said, God could take a speaker on a given day and set him aside for a special purpose for that day, and that would be an accurate thing, uh, a description of of anointing. Uh, But it is not, I think, here's what I'm trying to say, I think is that we, we have to separate, we cannot equate anointing with our emotional response. Because an anointing, for, let's just put it this way. If, if God comes and, and say there's somebody who comes and they're, they're, uh, um, uh, they're an alcoholic, they're addicted to alcohol, and they come to the front and we pray for them and God anoints that moment, and they have, but they have no emotional response, but they walk out of there and never have a desire to drink again. You see, that, that the anointing was powerful in that moment, but, we're, but we can't tie it to the emotion. Because here's the danger. If we tie it to the emotional response, then we're going to begin to gear everything to get an emotional response. And that's not what we want. If an emotional response happens, that's great. If it doesn't happen, that's great. What we want is the real thing. What we want is the presence of God. What we want is for God to do his work. And, and the problem with it is, is that, you know, uh, we, we're not all the same emotionally. Isn't that right? I mean, you know, I, I have historically been one that when I get in the presence of God, I tend to tear up. I become a, have a more of emotional response. But I know many people that are very quiet, very reserved emotionally. They don't have to respond in the moment the same way that I do for, for it to be a powerful moment under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. See, we can't ever turn the emotional response and you can't gauge you can't gauge what god's doing in somebody's life by the level of their emotional response it's impossible because the emotion is not the same as the spirit you don't know what's going on in that person's spirit one person might be standing there might be blubbering like a baby and you think god's doing something really powerful and it may be that god's trying to do something really powerful but in their but that they're fighting god and that's why they're crying and god never really gets to do what he wants to do but another person might quietly surrender might kneel never shed a tear and god could do something really powerful in his life and so that's that's the whole thing about anointing that i want to talk about that i wanted to bring out is that is that that's what it is but i also wanted to mention this we tend to make it this special thing that say certain people get it. 
That is not what the New Testament teaches. You know what, what John is saying here? He, he said to every believer, he said, you have been anointed. The Spirit of God anoints every believer. Every believer has been set aside for God's purposes. And, 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 and you've been set aside for his, for his plans. And all that to say this, you know, because you, you, you can, that's another problem with this idea of looking at somebody and saying, oh, they're really anointed. Because you can sit back and, and say they're really anointed without ever realizing you're anointed. You're anointed by God. You've been set up, up aside by God. There's something he has for you. It doesn't mean that you're going to be doing the same thing that, uh, that the preacher is doing because he's been set aside to preach. Therefore, he's an anointed preacher. You may be set aside to serve. And you, can, you will be an anointed servant. It's a different way of thinking things through things. I think it's important for us to get. And so, uh, again, I want to go back to this and, and emphasize this again. When we talk about this, this anointing that leads us to truth that he talks about, uh, again, don't rely on what feels right when determining truth. The Holy Spirit will always confirm God's word. So I want to get back to that. Let's, let's read verse 21. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. I want to just, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. We're going to read it more in a minute, but I just want to say he's, he's not, he's saying to them, the false teachers are saying, I'm going to talk to you because you don't know the truth. I'm going to tell you the real truth. And John is saying, that's not why I'm writing. I'm writing because you do know the truth and I want you to remain in the truth. That's his whole point in writing. Uh, verse 20, 22, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. That's where he says, you know the truth. Now remain in it. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us. If we remain in the truth, what did he promise us? Eternal life. So those with the anointing of the Holy Spirit know, know not only uh, the, the truth about the Father and the Son, but, but that person can also detect what does not measure up to the standard of truth. Thus, John explained that he was not writing them because they don't know the truth, but because they do know it. He was not giving them further teaching. He was not giving them some new special revelation. Uh, the false teachers, they were the ones trying to do that. Instead, he was reaffirming the truth that had already been taught to them and that they had, had already believed. And, and I think the, the lesson for us is that we, we need to remember what we know and we need to put that into action. Uh, what, what we need, can I tell you this? What we need in the church, not just this church, but the church at large in America especially, what we need is not new truth. What we need is for the truth that we already know to become active and effective in our lives. I heard somebody say this a long, long time ago, and it was stuck, stuck with me over the years. And I think it's still very, very true in the church in America. We are educated well beyond the level of our obedience. We know more already 
than most of us actually do. Now, that's not meant to be a condemnation. That's meant to be a challenge for us to look at it and say, okay, wait a minute. Are there things that I know are right that I'm just ignoring? So, uh, and it's not to say, that's not to say that we never need to learn anything new. Because anybody here, does anybody here know everything? Okay, good. To, I'm glad nobody raised their hand, except for Dustin. But we just ignore him. <laughs> He's got a great sense of humor. But, um, you know, it's not, it's not that we never need to learn anything new, but it is to say that we have light enough right now to walk by, and so we should use the light that we have. And, and by the way, as we do that, that's when God leads us into greater depths of knowledge and intimacy with Him. Um, so he, he said in verses 22 and 23, I'm going to read it again. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Christ, Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So uh, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Uh, uh, so apparently... What was taking place was the Antichrist, these false teachers in John's day, were claiming faith in God while denying and opposing Christ. Maybe they were saying things like, we have this new knowledge that you can, you can have this eternal life without Jesus. You don't need him anymore. They may have been saying something like that. But he, John is saying to, to claim to have faith in God while denying and opposing Christ is impossible. That's what he says. He says, because Jesus is God's son, and he's the Messiah, to deny Jesus, to deny Christ, rejects God's way of revealing himself to the world. That's how God has chosen to reveal himself to the world is through his son, Jesus Christ. So if we reject Jesus, we're rejecting the way he has chosen to reveal himself. So a person who accepts Christ as God's son accepts God as the father at the same time. The two cannot be separated. Those who reject the Son can never know the Father, since the Father is known only by the Son. Matthew eleven twenty seven, All things have been committed to, this is Jesus, all things have been committed to me by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well, for... From now, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus made it very, very clear that no one can claim to have a special knowledge of God while denying Jesus Christ's deity and his humanity and his death and his resurrection, his work, his person and his work. Verse 24, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the son and in the father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. Now, many of these Christians here that he's writing to had heard the gospel message from John himself. So he knows what they heard. He knows what they believed. And they, they knew that Christ was God's son that he had died for their sins, that he had been raised to give them new life, and that he would return and establish his kingdom in fullness. Uh, however, these teachers who were denying these basic doc doctrines of the Christian faith, 
were infiltrating their fellowship. And some of the believers were in danger of succumbing to their false arguments because it's so appealing. You know, everybody wants to be part of the in crowd. There's something socially in us that wants to be uh, in the know. And so when you have these false teachers say, we've got some special knowledge. Boy, you, you think you've got something you just don't know. If you only knew what I knew, if you come, I'll teach you. I'll show you this. Give us and so it's this very subtle pull to, to elevate yourself. And it's really, a, it's really an appeal to pride is what it really is. Because it's, it's saying, uh, you know, it's, same, it's really the same appeal that Satan made uh, in the garden to Eve. If you'll eat this, you'll be like God's. You're going to have this special knowledge. Same thing. Um, and so they were, some of the believers were in danger, and John encouraged them to remain faithful to what they've been taught from the beginning. He wanted them to hold on to the Christian truth that had already changed their lives. Now, all believers must grow in their knowledge of the Lord and all believers must deepen their understanding through careful study of the word. But in that process, we must never, ever abandon the basic truths about Jesus. Jesus will always be God's son and his sacrifice for sins is permanent. No truth that anyone wants to try to claim will ever contradict these basic teachings of the Bible. And John, John's readers needed to hold on to what they had been taught from the beginning. And if they resisted the lies of these antichrists, then they would continue to live in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And by, by clinging to the truth about God, the Father, and Christ His Son, believers can be sure that we will never be separated from fellowship with God. Um, believers can remain faithful and committed by the grace of God to the very end. Uh, uh, and so the, 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 the key for us is just hang on to Jesus. Don't, don't get, you know, there's so many, so many weird teachings out there today and they'll, they'll try to take you in all these weird things and weird directions. Just stay focused on Jesus. Hang on to Jesus. You can't go wrong if you hang on to the basics of the gospel. That's what matters. That's what we're called to proclaim. Not all those other things. Verse 26 through 29. I'm going to try to hurry and get these in. I'm, I'm writing these things to you as those who are trying to lead you astray. Uh, excuse me, to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. And you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things... And as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, he may be confident. Excuse me. We may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So I'm going to try to uh, try to condense this last little part here. Uh, th these false teachers were trying to lead people into error away from the basic gospel that had been taught from the beginning. And so they were not satisfied with just removing themselves. They, they were actively trying to lure people from the churches in Ephesus into their teaching. And listen, honestly, here's the truth. The reality is their aim was to assume leadership over the community of believers. They didn't like that John had authority over those. They wanted to be the authority. And it was really about control. And I'm here to tell you, uh, probably 99.9% .9 of all church problems and church disputes and church arguments 
are never really about the issue that, 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 that whatever the issue is. It's about power and control. Who's going to have the right to make the decision? And, and, uh, and, and, and that's what that's it's still over the centuries. It's still the same thing. And John wrote as he did because these, these Christians needed to be aware of those who wanted to lead them astray because he's saying, you know, I mean, if they were ignorant of them, they would be more susceptible to them. Um, but the, the reality is John wanted, wanted them to see clearly that these false teachers were spouting lies. Um, and, if, and if believers could spot the lies, then they'd be able to stand against the false teachings. So here's the key for that. We must possess knowledge, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. We must possess knowledge of the truth to help us sort through all of the various teachings that are rampant in the world today so that we can remain faithful. Uh, because the reality is it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to convince someone of a falsehood if they already know the truth. You will be far less susceptible to a falsehood if you're in the word and you know the truth. That's why it's so important. It's the anchor for us. Um, so study the word of God is vital because it guards us from those false teachings. And we need it more than ever because uh, I don't know that there's more false teaching than ever before, but I will say it's far more accessible than it's ever been before. Because through the internet, through television, through radio, through all of these means, um, you know, it's much easier to find false teachers and their teaching is much more accessible to people. And John said, he said, you do not need anybody to anyone to teach you. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't listen to any human teacher? Well, I hope not because that's, you know, what I'm doing today, right? And we know that's not the case. We know that's not what he's saying because, you know, in Ephesians, it tells us the that says that Christ gave to the church uh, and goes through apostles and, and prophets. And, and, but he goes down and he says, and pastors and teachers. And so he gave teachers to the church. So we know that's not what it means. Uh, but what he's saying is you don't need some special person with special knowledge to give you something that you're not going to get out of the word of God and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and again, it just goes back to the better believers know the truth, the more easily the Holy Spirit will be, will be able to reveal a lie. Um, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead here because we're just about out of time. Uh, I want to look at verse 28 and 29. He says in verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him as, as, as at his coming. You know, I believe there are going to be two responses that people will have when Christ returns. There will be those that are ashamed and will be afraid. Those who, who reject Christ will be rejected by him in the final judgment. But then there will be those who have continued in him, who abide in Christ who will be confident. See, that's what Hebrews it said. We can, uh, therefore, we, we, it says that we can enter into the throne room of God boldly. We come boldly before the throne of grace. So we, we, we can, uh, there are going to be, those who continue in Him will be confident 
and will be unashamed before him at his coming. Not because we've done anything, but because we're in him. And we've remained in him. That's, if you notice, that's the one thing John kept coming back to over and over again. He said, continue in Christ. Remain in Christ. In fact, that's the same word that he used back in John uh, where he talks about the passage about the, the vine and the branches. And he says, abide in me. Uh, it's the same word, abide in him. Because the, in the same way, the, 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 the branch cannot exist without abiding in the vine. If, it's, if you're not tied into Christ, you can't, you can't survive. But when we do, persevering in, in our relationship with Christ ensures that we will remain true to the faith and it keeps us ready for, for Christ's return. And so I think, we're just going to close with this. I think we, we need to, I think there's a question we need to ask ourselves. And that is if Christ were, were to return tonight. In, say, say if you knew he was going to return in five minutes. Would you be confident as a result of your life and the way you live? Or would you be embarrassed because of a lack of obedience? And see, that's the idea of living with this constant belief, knowing that Christ can return. Because we know that in our head, but sometimes we don't live it that way. So that's my challenge tonight. It's just to say, Lord, are there things that I know that I'm not living out? Am I educated beyond the level of my obedience? Or am I, am I re- remaining in you? Am I abiding in Christ? Am I staying in there? Or am I just playing church? Because, Lord, I need to know. Because we want to remain in Him so that when He appears, we'll be unashamed. Unashamed, not because we've done anything, but because we are in Christ. We'll be unashamed. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank You for Your presence, and we thank You, Lord, that we can remain in You. We can abide in You. And as we do, Lord, that You prepare us for that day when You return. And when that happens, God, that because we are in you, we can be unashamed, we can be confident, we can, we can stand boldly because of what you've done in our lives. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to guard our hearts and to guard our hearts specifically, God, by getting into your word, by memorizing your word, by knowing what your word says, because through that word, Lord God, you're able to protect us and guard us from false teachings, and you're able to keep us focused on the Jesus who is our message, on the person and work of Christ and what he, who he is and what he's truly done. And God, I pray that as we stay that way, as we stay focused and we stay, as we abide in you, that you would make us lights shining in the darkness, that not only would we be ready for your return, but we would help others come to know you so that they would be ready as well. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.